Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And follow us at our new Twitter account. We're at CVL Soundboard. Later in the show, Nathan Moore and Peter Galaska discuss Mark Herring's upcoming cannabis summit. Word is they'll be getting in the weeds of marijuana policy. Plus, we talk to Alice Claire about Femme Funk and its mission to promote femme artists and support reproductive justice here in Charlottesville. But first, we catch up on the local education news with Billy Jean-Louis and Elliot Robinson from Charlottesville Tomorrow. Today, we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Billy Jean-Louis and editor Elliot Robinson. Billy recently published an article titled, The Population of Latino Students Tripled in Albemarle County Schools in the Last 14 Years. This is what they say they need. Tell us a little bit about what needs the students brought up. That's a good question. So a few things. First, the Latino student population in Albemarle County Public Schools has grown from 601 students in 2005 to 1,844 in 2018. Now, at Albemarle High School, Latino students make up 14.6% of the student population. I had the chance to talk to a group of students a few weeks ago. They're advocating for the administration, uh, including Spanish in a more academic setting, having more school staff participate in events tailored to Latino students, and creating opportunities that teach American children the history of immigration. Let's dig a little bit deeper into language. Can you give us some examples of when students felt marginalized by the language spoken class? A student told me that she was told not to speak Spanish in her class because it's not professional. She said she understands that the goal is to speak English so that she can learn, but she also argued that there should be a time where she's allowed to speak her native language. And what ideas do students have to make classes more inclusive of Spanish speakers? Students want the decision to allow Spanish in a more academic setting. From the conversation I had with them, that seems to be what they really, really need from the administration. And since there's a foreign language requirement for diplomas, it it sounds like a great idea. I know personally, when I took Spanish in high school, if I had to take other courses in Spanish, I probably would have kept up with it more instead of forgetting two-thirds of what I learned. Can you tell us a little bit more about the two-way emergent program at Cale Elementary? Yeah, that's a good question. So students learn half of the day in Spanish and half of the day in English. Research shows for families whose native language is Spanish, that is the best program for supporting academic development. It seems to me like having bilingual programs, especially in elementary schools, benefits students who aren't native English speakers and whose family aren't native English speakers, but also could really benefit all children. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the globe is shrinking because of how we're uh, more connected from being addressed the internet in general, so it would be an advantage to learn a, a second language. I mean, pretty much every other country in the world emphasizes learning your native language plus something else. From a young age. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Haiti. It was 
a requirement for me to learn a different language. But I feel like here it's a choice. Curriculum also came up. How do students hope to be better represented in the subject matter of their classes? I think what really came up was the fact that they want the division to have classes that teach about immigration. So both the county and the city schools are working to create a more inclusive curriculum that tells the story of marginalized groups. The county told me that social studies teachers are working on a program evaluating the current history curriculum, which will result in a more inclusive of historical events. The county also said that they welcome the idea of having more staff participate in events for Latino students and should feel comfortable discussing the idea with their principal. Immigration, they said, is an excellent example of how the approach can benefit all students by studying the voices and experiences of people whose perspectives have been absent in traditional history lessons. And the county also said that it hopes to begin to see some of these curriculum improvements take effect in the school next school year. So earlier we were talking about students speaking their native language in classes. So in response to that, the division said it does not have a policy or practice that determines how a teacher responds to a student who speaks a language other than English. That decision is made by teachers on an individual basis and can be connected to any of many considerations. Are there any examples of ways in which the school makes efforts to better communicate with parents for whom English is not their first language? I know that in one of their facilities, there are not a lot of like Latino students, so they're going to be hosting events where they're having technology set up so that whatever the speaker is saying, it'll provide translation to parents whose English is not their first language. Can you tell me a little bit about your process of writing this article? I, I realized in doing a story like this, it was imperative to get the student's voice in it. So I talked to a teacher, and then the teacher put me in touch with some of the students and talked to them, kind of like hearing what they want the division to do to better serve them because we're having a lot of policies that the school board is approving and the people who are affected by these policies are the children. So I wanted to hear what they had to say. And it was a good experience to just like talk to them. Yeah, they're the earliest example of what we're trying to do as our publication evolves of going beyond just meeting coverage and being able to like get the students' voices in and hopefully uh, eventually getting some parents to also weigh in on some of the issues that are surrounding the school system that go well beyond uh, what a vote is or what's in a press release. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I first started reporting on the story, Ella told me to reach out to the state to get some numbers. And then I reached out to the spokesman, and then he gave me some sort of tool where you can go to see, you know, how many students enrolled each year. So I sat down and then just, like, put this year how many Latino students were here. In 2006, how many? In 2007, 2008. And I did that for the Latino students to see how they were growing, but I also did that for other groups, like black students. And one thing that I realized is that, like, for the black children, there hasn't been much of an increase. It's been, like, steady 
but it's just for the Latino students, we're just increasing every year. What factors do people attribute to this growth? I had a chance to talk to a teacher. His name is Russell Carlock. He told me that in the last wave of immigration in 1900s, most immigrants went to the industrial parts of the of the country to work in factories. And that's in the Northeast and Midwest. Some of that wave bypassed the South. And part of that was because the South was still in uh, economic dire straits after the Civil War. So even though there was some immigration, it did not have the same impact on the southern part of the U.S. that it did on the other parts of the country. So now the southern economy has been better in the last 20 to 30 years, and that's attracting more immigrants. And the same demand for workers have resonated in Charlottesville as well. So switching gears just a little bit, you have another article coming out tomorrow on the county's new high school centers. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? So in response to the growing student population at Albemarle County Public Schools, the county was faced with two decisions. It could build a new high school or have a high school center. So it chose to have a high school center because it's cheaper. And for those who don't know what the center is, this year it accepted seniors only. It allows them to work on their capstones to create projects. One student wrote a children's book last year. So very exciting things going on in the building. But one thing that the division is trying to also do as it plans to expand the model is trying to diversify the student population at the center because it's nearly 80% white and there's no Latino student who goes there. So I had the chance to talk to uh, school officials about how they're keeping equity in mind. The school board just approved a resolution to have a second center. So I've spent a lot of time working on this story. It will go live on our website tomorrow. I'm excited about it, of course. It's it's always good to see something you've been working on for so long and it's finally complete. Yeah, looking forward to talking more about that. All right, let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? For me, I've, I've had this job for, what, like seven months now, and I've not seen my family since then. So I think, you know, just like going back to Miami and seeing the friends and family, eating good food, Haitian food, of course. So that's, that's my, those are my plans. And I'm looking forward to going home to Hampton for Thanksgiving. Uh, originally, my mom said that she absolutely was not going to cook, but then when I casually mentioned that I couldn't figure out where I was going, she immediately went grocery shopping, so it's going to be nice. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for coming. Have a good vacation. Have a good break. You deserve it. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter covering education for Charlottesville tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. All right, let's turn it over to Caroline Hockenbury and Alice Clare. I'm here with Alice Clare, co-director of FemFunk, which is a fem musician showcase for the UVA and Charlottesville communities. Now in its third year, FemFunk has successfully raised thousands for local women's organizations. 
And this year, the event will benefit Planned Parenthood here in Charlottesville. So I was just curious about FemFunk's origin story, and how would you describe your place in that narrative? I guess I was a second year at UVA, and I had just become a member of the Miller Art Scholars. Uh, and I realized that there are $500 grants available every semester to those who are in that program. If you're at UVA, I highly suggest checking that out and seeing if you can get involved. And I was thinking to myself, what, what do I enjoy? How can I spin a project off of, you know, an available resource? And I was a musician at that point and before, and I still am. And I thought, how can I loop in feminism with organizing an event with music and it all kind of culminated in let's do a concert that benefits a women's organization that highlights local uh, women who are in music and we've obviously we've expanded that femme musicians we don't want to limit anybody based on who they are it didn't really hash out to what it is until I asked my good friend Maddie Bainline if she had any ideas, if she wanted to be a part of it. She had an organization at the time through Hack Seville called Sheville. We complement each other so well because she does graphic design. She's terribly creative um, and a go-getter. And uh, I had music connections and the idea of how to put a show together. So together, we came up with the first Femme Funk. It happened uh, early December of 2017. We had a five-band showcase at the Annie Room and raised a little over $1,400 for uh, the Shelter for Help in Emergency. We made sure, especially that year, that we were showing UVA student bands as well as community musicians to try to unite those two communities as well. I want to know about the core mission of the showcase and how that relates to both feminism and philanthropy. I think... In the current political state, I think that reproductive rights and feminism really are hand in hand right now. And if I have an opportunity to donate any money to any kind of organization, it would be something that can benefit as many people as possible who need it and who aren't getting it otherwise, which is why last year and this year we've focused our attention to giving towards Planned Parenthood especially in 2018 when we were starting to plan for the second Femme Funk, Planned Parenthood was especially getting attacked. And another wonderful woman, Olivia Hampson, was doing a huge project with Planned Parenthood at the time. I was living with her, and she got me in touch with um, their outreach coordinator, Ashley Farmer. And so we got the second Femme Funk on board with donating to Planned Parenthood. Our mission really is to benefit women and femme people across the world and through that, everybody. All the while, we offer something, too. We offer music and a good time. What is it about music as an art form that has the potential and power to ignite these really real conversations about social progress? Music can motivate people and to be able to highlight local musicians, and not only local musicians, but local femme musicians. It empowers the community to know that they're out there, to go to their shows in the future, to support them in other ways. You guys really do have a stacked lineup this year, and like you were saying, the styles are so varied. 
Some people described themselves as having a funky neo-soul style, and others said, said that they had more of a psychedelic gutter glam edge to their music. So I was just curious about the process of selecting these musicians. So our first year, we had Harley in the house. At the time, they were called Harley in the House of Juniper, um, and they've since changed their name to Jupiter. We had them on the lineup, and they just blew it out of the water. I've known Harley for probably three years now, and she just is truly amazing. Um, Our first year, we had five groups. Our second year, we had five completely different groups. And then this third year, I wanted to bring some back and some new ones in. And so Harley is back this year, which is just excellent. We have a new name, uh, Marty, on the lineup this year. Caroline Holman has been working so hard here at UVA putting together her own project, which is Marty, and we're very excited to have her on the lineup this year. Um, She was a first year last year, so still new to the Charlottesville scene, so very excited to have her. I have known Emily Julia Kresge now for a little while, and I've worked with the drummer Sean Bracken of that group. And I'm just a huge fan of not only of their music, but also their community engagement. She's big at the front porch, teaching kids and just getting music out to the community. And we're excited to have them on the lineup this year for the first time. And uh, Ships in the Night is a new one on the lineup as well. Alethea is truly amazing. I'm very excited to have her. Um, She is probably the most out-of-the-park genre-wise with this lineup. But she has gained quite a following for herself and her, uh, I'd say, specialized type of music, electronic pop in some regard. And that'll be a really fun part of the show to see and to hear. And finally, um, Sally Rose, we grew up in Nelson County together. When I was taking guitar lessons at Blue Star Music, she was also teaching there. And she's been a front woman with uh, many groups now for a long time, working very hard. And she's also, must be the CEO, would be her title of uh, FLAG, which is Fight Like a Girl. So she's been on the feminist front for quite a while. And we actually had her other project, the Sally Rose Band, play last year. And we were hoping to get Shag Wolf either last year or this year. And very happy to have Shag Wolf on the lineup this year. It's a trio. She plays bass. And they rock. It's really cool to hear about how many relationships converge to make this happen. How many connections within the community. Before we go, last thing I wanted to ask was what you're most excited about for the third time around. What lessons have you learned and what things are you excited to continue as the legacy of this showcase? What have I learned is the easiest one to answer because I could talk forever about what I've learned and what I know I don't know. Really what I've learned is that the more people you can get involved with something, the more valuable it becomes. And so it's a facet of community, but it's also just if everybody's excited for it, it's going to be good. What I'm most excited for this year is to see everybody start walking through the door. Every year I'm sitting there the day of and anxiety at the peak like, oh gosh, how is this going to happen? How is it going to come together? And then you just see everybody coming through the door, smiles on their faces, ready to go and listen. The bands are there. They're all ready to play. They're all stoked to be there. So that's really what I'm most excited for is just day of, everybody having a good time. And uh, I hope I get to see everybody there. 
That has to be a really special feeling, seeing it all come together in the end. It is a tearjerker in a good way. <laughs> Femme Funk is going down Friday, November 22nd at the Southern Cafe and Music Hall. Doors open at 6 and music kicks off at 8 p.m. Femme Funk is for everybody and it's for you and I hope to see you there. Thanks so much, Alice. Thank you. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, as we do each week here on Soundboard, we talk about state news and politics, and so we check in with our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He lives over in the Richmond area and writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Peter, good morning. Morning. Well, I want to start today off with uh, Mark Herring, our Attorney General here in Virginia. He is hosting what's being called a Cannabis Summit, which, uh, despite being sort of an unintentionally hilarious name, is about uh, cannabis policy in the state of Virginia. Um, Take me through what is going on and what is possible around cannabis uh, legislation this year. Well, I'm not sure it's about megatons, but we'll see. Anyway, no, what it is is basically a number of states, of course, um, have either you know decriminalized or done done things with with cannabis, um, either medically or just for recreational use. And and this is this movement has been growing for a number of years now, and and yet it's not really taken effect. I believe in Virginia. Um, there's a limited medical cannabis program that, you know, if you're, you need it, and doctor says you need it for medical reasons and you can get it. But general stuff to either decriminalize it or legislate it has gotten nowhere, especially since the Republicans were in charge of the General Assembly. That's no longer going to be true come January with the Democrats coming in. So Mark Herring, our Attorney General, who is a, uh, a very act, fairly activist, progressive um uh, Attorney General is saying, "Let's talk about it. Let's have a summit," and that's that's pretty interesting. So, who's coming to the summit? What can uh, what, what what are they what are their positions? Well, I think a lot of Democrats, obviously, are going to to come in. Um, the Virginia Cannabis Caucus, uh, with mostly well, for people from mostly Democrats from Portsmouth and Fairfax and things like that. And I, I would assume some Republicans are going to be there, as we can say. All right. Well, so the Democrats are going to do something probably around cannabis. Not sure what. And Herring's convening people to figure it out. Um, want to move on to another story that you wrote about this week. There's about a half mm-hmm. a dozen rural counties in Virginia that have mm-hmm. declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries. Um, right. Exactly what that means is unclear, except that they're definitely very pro-gun ownership in those places. Right. You, your headline on this is the rank hypocrisy of rural gun sanctuaries. Yeah. Tell me, take me through what you're writing about. Well, first off, um, the, the political you know, backlight of this is that the Democrats, once again, are going to control the General Assembly. And over a number of years, uh, when the Republicans were in charge, they would owe any, anything, anything that would in any way control guns was shot down in committee. It never even got to the floor. It was just dead on arrival. You know, never, um, you know, never got anywhere. Well, that's going to change. And because of that, a lot of people, especially since these tend to be more white people uh, in rural areas, but, you know, the idea is that, that if 
there is a either the state government or legislature or Congress passes something really tough on, say, automatic rifles or something, assault rifles, then they will ignore it. And what's sort of really kind of ironic here is when people like Donald Trump and Corey Stewart, the former political candidate, and they were really bringing up uh, before the last presidential election the idea of so-called sanctuary cities because they just were not going to help the um, immigration ICE people round up immigrants. And they brought this up in Virginia. The irony was that there were no official sanctuary cities as described in Virginia. It made no sense. So now what you're seeing, the guns rights uh, advocates are borrowing or usurping the immigrant nomenclature. And it's sort of kind of strange. But there's a lot of parents. It's a pretty powerful movement, apparently. And and people really do believe that someone's going to come and break down their door and, and take their guns away. So when these counties, when these counties pass uh, ordinances or symbolic bills saying that they're sanctuary counties for the Second Amendment, what exactly do they do they mean? Well, that's not really clear. And the thing is, is that, you know, you can't have a city and and say, well, we've decided to not obey, you know, local, state, or federal laws. And you just can't really do that, because if you do that, that's sort of like having declaring civil war. <laughs> yeah, and go, go full John Calhoun and, and talk about nullification. Yeah. There. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and go back, you know, to like, you know, Waco and all these other people out, and, you know, survivalists, and they say, we're not obeying these laws anymore, and, and there's a big shootout, and, you know, things like that. It's happened in the past. But, you know, it really isn't clear. I mean, you just can't pick and choose what, what laws you're going to obey. In the case of ICE in large, large um, Virginia cities, for example, and other cities, you know, you have police departments. They're fighting real, real bad crime like murder, like a lot of drug stuff and assault, rape, etc. And then they don't have time to do ICE's work for them because they have plenty to do elsewhere. And so they may participate in a sweep, but maybe they won't. So, I mean, that's kind of a, that's in a way, that's a way, I guess, of getting around the law. But it's not like that they're not obeying the immigration laws. It's just, it's just not, not true. So sanctuary counties for Second Amendment uh, at this point seems mostly symbolic. But, you know, I guess what we'll just kind of wait and see what gun legislation comes down the pike to see if they actually mean anything by it. Is that about right? Yeah, in a court, there'll probably be a court case somewhere, and that will be a deciding factor. Yeah. Well, last story for today, Peter. I want to talk about the GAO, the Government Accountability Office at the federal level, warning about Superfund sites around the country and also here in Virginia that could be impacted by climate change. Superfund sites, of course, are places that are incredibly polluted and sort of have special federal protection and funding to try and keep that stuff from getting out. Meanwhile, the Trump administration's EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, isn't doing a lot about this, really. But, um, but yeah, so 15 out of 24 sites in Virginia, most, mm-hmm. really, of the Virginia Superfund sites, could be impacted by strong storms or flooding or otherwise. What's going on here? I used to work down in the Tidewater area for a newspaper many years ago. There was a, a big company there called Atlantic Wood. It was formed around 1927. And back in those days, everybody used creosote and other tough chemicals, nasty chemicals, um, when they built docks. The other thing that the Navy especially needed is that that they would often have to paint their ships. So the way that they'd do that is they'd put the big ship into a dry dock, and they would sandblast the old paint and rust and barnacles off the ship. 
you know, they'd have to dispose of that somewhere. So they went to a place called Atlantic Wood, which was later declared a Superfund site, and the company's been out of business for years. Nearly 50 acres of it, kinds of really bad stuff, are still there, for example. You look at other places, uh, some of the other 50, uh, 14 sites for it in Chester, Chesterfield, for example, on the James River. There's a site that um, would take lead from old car batteries and truck batteries and somehow recycle it. The problem is is that you're having more and more powerful storms. Many scientists believe it's, it's definitely related to global warming and climate change. So if you have tides coming in of 20 feet or you have, you know, 10 feet of rain, a lot of those chemicals are going to be swept away. And what Trump is trying to do is he's trying to do with everything. He's trying to sort of turn back any aggressive enforcement of doing anything about this to make make the sites safer. It's almost like sort of a quiet policy of, of not bothering right now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and you've seen this. I mean, he's really defanged EPA and other organizations that, you know, enforce rules. Places like Norfolk and Tidewater and Rupert News, look what happened to Tyndall Air Force Base a couple of years ago. An entire Air Force Base was pretty much destroyed by a hurricane. And the military, the Navy are very worried about this stuff. All right, Peter. Well, on that unhappy note, let's uh, call it a week and check in next okay. week. Okay. Okay, thank you. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Justine Baird and Caroline Hockenbury. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or podcast home at TJFM.